the greater the distance between your values and your behavior, the greater the dis-ease. And in this big gap, we find anxiety and we find depression and we find alcoholism and we find affairs and we find addiction. So if we can close the gap, then we are much more likely to find integrity and to show up truly in the way that we want to. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Laura Pence, who is also probably better known as Dr. L. She's a licensed (laughs) clinical psychologist. She holds a doctorate degree in psychology and a master's in business administration. And she's best known for her straightforward approach to talking about mental health and the importance of building resilience in a society that prioritizes comfort and complacency over courage and challenge, which I am so excited to talk to her about today. Dr. L works with executives, elite athletes, entrepreneurs, and others to elevate their performance through curiosity and understanding of the mind-body connection. And in addition to her clinical practice, she's the founder of Lifebox, the chief mind doc of Spartan Race, co-author of 10 Rules of Resilience, Mental Toughness for Families, and she's part of the expert team on CNBC's No Retreat Business Bootcamp. So welcome, Dr. L. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm so (laughs) psyched to be here. I'm excited to just chat with you for like the next however long we're going to chat. Me too. This has become one of my favorite topics to chat about. And so I'm excited to learn from you as an expert and someone who has been living and breathing this for so many years. So Just to start off with how, can you give us some background on how you became Dr. L? What led you to clinical psychology? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it literally started like as far back as eighth grade um, in terms of, I was in, you know, I forget even what the course was called, like human behavior or something like that. Yeah. It was one of those courses where like you carried around an egg to pretend it was a baby. And, yes. Like, I remember there people. Yeah, exactly. We had a, um, I think it was like a sack of flour. Yeah. And we dressed it up as a baby. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so there was something about that, that I just like the whole, just learning about humans. Mm-hmm. I just found really interesting. And I was also like a very curious kid in the sense that I grew up actually watching movies like my whole life. My parents were in a film festival. And so we were always watching movies. And so stories and characters and relationships were always Mm -hmm. like a really central part of my life in discussing them and sort of going through a process of discovery. So, you know, when I went away to college, I mean, it, it, you know, it sounds sort of boring, but it really was like a straight shot. I knew that I wanted to major in psychology. And then I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, and so I did just that, you know, I took a year off between college and graduate school just to, you know, be, be young for a little bit. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I think everyone yeah, should do then, that. Exactly. And then I headed off to graduate school. Um, and I went into a program that was really specific towards clinical work. I mean, I was really clear on the fact that I did not want to do research that mm-hmm. I wanted to sit with people and do therapy and, um, and really sort of explore that dyad and that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after 
graduate school, I took a postdoc fellow down at Children's Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And um, and then after that, I ran a, facil- a treatment facility for a little bit. And then I found myself pretty quickly into private practice. And, um, and that was just delightful. I mean, it was, you know, when you're invited into the story of another human being, I mean, even on a podcast like this, you know, it's it's just such an honor to be able to sit with someone and engage in a process of curiosity and understanding and to be able to witness change and transformation. So I really, I just fell in love with my private practice. I mean, it's what I, I mean, it's the bulk of what I do today. And it's just, it excites me every time that I get to see a client and every day is different and every client is different and every issue is different. And of course there's similar threads and ideas, but, um, but it's really exciting and it's a real challenge. And I started working with Spartan in particular in sort of a very bizarre way. I got this random phone call from a producer because Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan, was doing a documentary about the mind-body connection and mm-hmm. what motivates people to change mm-hmm. um, and sort of what is the quote-unquote best approach. You know, do you go heavy-handed and really lean in on how somebody's life isn't working for them or do you you know, really tug at the threads of ambivalence and whether or not they want to change. And so Joe found his way into my office and we kind of did this like makeshift therapy session and we just spoke the same language. I mean, I really realized that actually in so many ways, like what Joe is asking humans to do in a physical way, overcome obstacles, you know, climb through the muck and mud of life. Mm -hmm. Like I was asking clients to do in sort of a more metaphoric way in my office. And so we really connected very quickly, spoke a similar language. And so he folded me into the company of Spartan to do some work with them. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, what I do today. That's amazing. And I can totally relate on the sort of the metaphor between the physical and the mental and how, so always growing up, I know you grew up as an athlete and I did as well. Mm -hmm. And how many life lessons we learn through sport or through taking on physical challenges that then translate into other aspects of our life. So I just love that, you know, you're working with Spartan as the chief mind doc. I think that is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, my entryway into working primarily with athletes actually came before Spartan because I, um, for many years was, you know, my practice was primarily filled up actually with individuals who were struggling in their relationship with food and had, Mm -hmm. you know, clinically diagnosable eating disorders and not surprising, I'm sure to you, many professional athletes and individuals who are really trying to achieve, you know, greatness in sport, get really confused about Mm -hmm. food and, Mm -hmm. and have a relationship that can be really destructive. And so, you know, a gymnast would be in my office or a wrestler would be in my office, or even a golf player would be in my office. And then, you know, athletes are friends with athletes. So, you know, they would talk and they would get a referral. And, um, and before I knew it, my practice sort of started to fill up more with athletes that weren't even looking to explore their relationship with food, but they had just heard things about me and sort of, you know, appreciated my approach from, you know, word on the street, so to speak. And so I started working a lot more with athletes and that's been incredibly rewarding and interesting for me because it really, you know, we really get to explore in real time that relationship between physical performance and sort of mental acuity and mental sharpness. And, Mm -hmm. um, that to me is really exciting. Mm -hmm. So working with athletes from all different sports and areas, um, what are some of the most common patterns that you see, um, that they're facing that, that are giving them a lot of challenges with mental health? Yeah. So I think for me, you know, 
one of the one of the biggest umbrellas that any professional athlete sort of stands on or under, right, is the umbrella of high performance. I mean, individuals who are really looking to push their body and be in the 1% are most likely unable to compartmentalize pushing themselves in just their sport. And so they push themselves in other areas as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And the truth is we're human and we burn out and we get tired and we can't actually do it all. Um, I am not of the belief that we can't actually have it all either. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's the biggest thing that I see is that, you know, a professional athlete who, by the way, also probably has another job because most, you know, don't necessarily make it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, are really pushing themselves in their career or stretching themselves way, way, way too thin. And so, you know, this is, I think, one of the most common threads that I see is really, you know, how do you rest and recover? How do you rejuvenate? How do you replenish, you know, all the, all of the R's, um, and not get, you know, and not operate from that fear position of if I slow down, Mm -hmm. I will lose my edge because for many of these athletes, listen, slowing down in their sport, you know, is of great concern to them because there is somebody right on their heels either literally on the track or figuratively mm-hmm. waiting to scoop up their spot, mm-hmm. waiting to scoop up their spot on the Olympic team, waiting to scoop up their spot on the podium, you know, waiting to scoop up their spot on the lane. And so, you know, they're constantly sort of operating from this position of if I slow down, I'm going to, you know, take myself out of the game. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to compartmentalize that in just sport. And so mm-hmm. it becomes, a part of, you know, their entire mental ethos, which in the end can be really destructive and really damaging. Absolutely. I love the, I think Oprah has a quote, you can have it all, just not all at once, which I, yes! I like, you know, you have to say like that you have to prioritize different things in different phases of life. Um, but it's, I think it's all, I agree with you. I don't know if we can have it all at once. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think too, the other part of that, you know, one thing I say a lot is, at any given time, I'm neglecting something or someone like at any given time, it could be my husband. It could be my children. It could be a client that doesn't Mm -hmm. get the very best of me on any given day because I've stretched myself somewhere else too much, you know? And so I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not a professional athlete. I'm an athlete, but it's, you know, I know that it's something that I, I have to effortfully and thoughtfully put into place in my own work too, is really being mindful of the energy that I'm giving in any one space. But at the end of the day, I still know that something's going to go neglected. There's an email I'm not going to return. There's a text message I'm not going to respond to. Um, And I just have to manage that and not beat myself up for it. So that's the other piece of, I think, the thread that I often see in working, you know, in this specific population with athletes is is the shame or the critic, the internal critic mm-hmm. whose volume can get turned up real high when some type of neglect falls into place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing I think that I spend my time working on a lot with athletes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, attention is really our most valuable resource, especially mm-hmm. nowadays with so many things clamoring for our attention. Oh my and gosh. I think, you know, I always used to say that being a professional athlete or being in a sport where that's your, you know, your primary focus in your life at a given time, it puts you on the fast track to learning a lot of life lessons because I think because 
at least in my mind, because your focus is solely on this one thing, or you have this big priority Mm -hmm. that almost everything else seems to fall below when you're trying to be the best in the world at something. And, Mm -hmm. but I think that it draws out a lot of the challenges that any of us may face in everyday life with the things that we're working on. So you mentioned, um, you know, this fear or, or worrying about where you fall, you know, with regard to other people, um, comparing with other people, chasing perfection, like this mm-hmm. real focus on achievement and defining your self-worth with achievement. Um, so many things that I think we probably all experience in different ways as humans, um, mm-hmm. but maybe they're they're highlighted when someone is putting so much of their attention and energy into one thing. And then, I, you know, I know we see a lot in athletes after they achieve that goal or after the Olympics or after a big competition, it's really um, a challenging time for them to then sort of reset. Yes. It's, I mean, I, I love that you brought that up because I think that it, I think that it can be really confusing for athletes to separate their performance from their identity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and listen, I mean, for example, for professional runners, you know, that might spend X amount of hours a day on track or out on their feet or in the gym. And then also, I mean, here's, here's the thing too, that I think people get really confused about when it comes to professional athletes. I don't know if this is the case for you or for some of the people you work with, but like, Many times friends and families think that it's just when they're doing their sport that they're training, but there's mental training and there's nutritional training and there's rest and recovery. So, you know, when people say like being a professional athlete can be like a full-time job, I mean, actually like all day long, it's about what am I doing at any given moment to increase my performance? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah. So I think in that way, you know, athletes have a really hard time as do all of us, by the way, yeah. separating what we do from our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, 100%, if someone were to say, well, how do you identify yourself? I mean, I would probably say a mom and I would say the things that I value, but I would absolutely also say that my work goes into that. Mm-hmm. So we think there's, I think, you know, there's not necessarily anything quote unquote wrong with having your identity be wrapped up in your athleticism. But I think what we really need to dial in on is the values that bring us there in the first place and why we are doing it. And I think that's why so many athletes at the, you know, quote unquote, end of their career, or when they reach that pinnacle, they leave and they say to themselves, well, who am I now? Well, if you have your values to hold on to, like this matters to me, you know, being a professional athlete mattered to me because it challenged me and I executed on discipline and the community was really important. Mm-hmm. You can find those three values in other places. Absolutely. And so if you're aligning with your values and know what your values are, it's going to be a lot easier for you to transition, you know, out of your sport or into something else um, and still find a sense of joy. It might not be the exact sense of experience that you found in your sport, but hopefully it's something that's comparable. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much there I want to dig into with with values and purpose. But um, Mm -hmm. also, I think one thing that came up as you were talking was talking about our identifying, you know, our sport with our identity, which I think, you know, we our sport or the things we do, maybe our job with our identity, which I think is, you know, we all naturally do to some degree. But there's a difference there between then defining our self-worth based on our performance, which I think is sometimes... Um, hard not to do, you know, when people are so focused on a specific goal and maybe they don't do as well as they think um, to feel like that's a reflection on 
who they are as a person or their, their worthiness. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I think where the difference is, is being able to know that your worth and value are inherent Mm -hmm. because you're a human, not because of any given performance on any given day. Like that's the difference. And it's okay. I mean, listen, I talk to my athletes a lot about how not only okay it is, but how awesome it is to be competitive. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, let's celebrate being competitive and wanting to be number one, because I think especially right now we've sort of put like, you know, um, wanting to win as, I don't know, it's in some ways, sometimes it's vilified. I think a lot of athletes don't want to say that out loud. They they just want to, there's sort of more pressure to say, I just want to have fun. Right. Just want to do my best. (laughs) The bachelor, that was a huge um, obstacle that I had to overcome as an athlete because naturally I just don't have this, um, this sort of instinct or this confidence to know, like I can win, I'm capable of winning. And I want to, I want to be the best. I'm always like, well, I'm just going to do my best and I hope everyone does well and all this stuff. And psychologically that affected me a lot in competition because Mm -hmm. there were times where I probably would have done better, but didn't really believe in myself or didn't believe I was Mm -hmm. as good as the girl who was a little bit ahead of me or, or things like that. And so that's something that I had to work on a lot. And I had a, you know, a psychologist that I worked with during my competition years just to develop that confidence in myself to know, yeah, I am capable of winning. Like I'm going to do my best and it's not going to define me, but I, I'm capable of it and believe yeah. in myself. Yeah. I love that. And I think that, you know, it's, it's okay. It's not only okay to, to believe that about yourself, but as you identified, like, in, especially for top level athletes, it's pretty essential mm-hmm. to believe that you can win. You know, nobody, no one at the Olympics steps up to the starting line and thinks to themselves like, um, you know, I don't have a chance here. Mm -hmm. Most all of them, you know, even if they're surprised to be there, there is a level of possibility. Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay. It's not, it's okay to declare that, but where we have to be really careful then is somehow tying that as you identified to our worth and value. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if I cross the finish line last, does that mean that I'm any less or any less or more deserving of love and belonging than the person who crossed the finish line mm-hmm. first. And so that separation, I think, is really important. Do you think there is a difference there in men and women athletes? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think there's a difference in in how, in, in, in sometimes like how men and women athletes, what's okay for them to express outward. Um, but I will tell you in my sessions behind closed doors, when no one else is watching or hearing, it's virtually the same. Mm-hmm. There are the same levels of insecurity. Yeah. There are the same levels of uncertainty. There are the same levels of, I don't know. I can't, I don't deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. How am I here with all these incredible athletes? Mm-hmm. Um, I think where I see the, the biggest difference is I feel like in a lot of the female athletes that I work with, there is, you know, a substantial amount of, um, uh, what would the word be like, um, fear around declaring how much they want to win versus some of the male athletes. Although that's definitely certain layer with male athletes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, because I do think that generally speaking, like women are very much identified as, you know, wanting to really just be supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think, you know, for a woman to say like, I want to crush my competition (laughs) just doesn't, people are like, whoa, she's aggressive. Yeah. When if a male said that, it'd be like, oh Oh, yeah, yeah. he's so confident. Yeah. He's, he's great. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And there's so So. much, I think so much as women too, we, um, and men too, but are so sensitive to what other people's reactions are. Like we're worried, we're worried. Oh, I don't want anyone to think that I'm overly confident or cocky or things like that. And so that I'm sure I know it's played in for me. I'm sure it plays in for others as well. Yeah. 100%. But it, it, it is really interesting and it has been really interesting. And, you know, I mean, this, this showed up all the time too, in my relationship, in my work with individuals who were struggling in their relationship with food Mm -hmm. is I would for sure see men in my practice and guess what? It's not all that different than Mm -hmm. the women, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think, I mean, I am a believer that there are lots of things that are different between men and women, but when it comes to insecurities, oftentimes we're, we're, we're in the same boat with each other. Absolutely. Well, I want to circle back to what you mentioned about, um, values and purpose, because Mm -hmm. I know this is something I experienced too. I'm sure people listening have heard me talk about this before, but I went through a really difficult time when I was competing and in med school and just lost a lot of motivation was going through really a depression. And it was because I hadn't defined for myself what, why was I doing what I was doing? Why was it important for Mm -hmm. me to continue competing And I remember speaking about self-worth. I remember a very specific conversation I had with my mom where she said, you know, you don't have to do any of this. You can drop out of med school tomorrow. You can stop competing in CrossFit tomorrow. We're still going to love you the same. And that to me like really hit home. And then it allowed me to then start exploring, well, why am I doing these things and develop that sort of purpose statement for myself and some of those values. Um, So how do you help? You talked about how having those values helps athletes or anyone transition from, you know, one endeavor to the next, because you, as long as you're living in integrity with those values, um, generally, you know, that's going to help, help you feel like you're, you know, you're fulfilling your purpose and you're in integrity. So how do you help people, um, kind of identify with that higher purpose and, and create and and identify values for themselves? Yeah. Well, I think one of the first things that I do with clients, I mean, in, literally like in the first few sessions with clients is really ask them about what about your sport matters to you? Like, Mm -hmm. why do you wake up every day and train? You know, what about that brings you joy? Um, And it's really interesting to me because there are some that, that, you know, have an answer and are able to sort of dive in maybe because they've done the work or maybe because they've had really good coaches all along that have sort of encouraged them to think about the value system of, of, you know, what, what keeps them in the sport. Um, but it's, it's got, it's always so surprising to me, actually, how many really don't have an answer mm-hmm. other than like, well, it's, it's kind of what I've always it's done. What I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I hear exact, that <laughs> exactly the boat I was in because it was like, well, I did it and I, you know, I did well. So of course I'm going to keep doing it. It wasn't right. really a second thought. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, oftentimes I also hear sort of like, well, it was never really a question that I wouldn't do this, you know? Um, And so I walk clients through like a very structured, simple exercise where I literally put, you know, a list of a hundred plus values in front of them, you know, everything from um, integrity to honor, to commitment, to discipline, to perfection, to competition, mm-hmm. to self-care, to love. I mean, all of them, right. Spirituality, community, um, service. And 
I asked them to go through an actual exercise of, okay, so look at this list of values and think about like what matters to you. And this is, you know, this is a little bit morbid, but if you were to write three values on your tombstone, you Mm -hmm. know, like Dr. L lived her life with adventure. She laughed a lot and she loved the F out of her family. Mm -hmm. You know, that, okay, that's, that's my system. Like that's my jam. Right. So I asked them to look at this list and to pick the things that really matter to them. And once they do that, then I go back through the list and I ask them like, where did that value come from? And if it came from a system, a family system, a religious system, an educational or academic institution, then I ask them to reevaluate. Like, is that really your value though? Or is that a value that somebody said to you Mm. was really important? That Um, is key. Yeah. Yeah. So key. And one of the biggest ones, honestly, that comes up is family. Mm. Um, Because listen, nobody wants to say family is not a value of mine. Nobody wants to say that. They sound Mm. horrible. I mean, let's just Mm. be honest. Like that that doesn't sound good. Right. Um, But the truth is that for many people, it's not in their top three. I mean, I could for sure say that there have been times in my life and I have two kids and I have a husband and I have a Mm -hmm. fantastic family where family actually really has not been my number one value. And I know that there are going to be people listening that are like, oh, cringing. That just sounds so bad. (laughs) That's the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I go through a real deep process with them in terms of asking some questions about their values and really sort of diving into have we hit the right ones? Like, are we really being honest here? Because the other thing is people might identify something that they think should matter to them. You know, they Mm -hmm. think sounds what everyone else thinks is important. Yes, exactly. But it doesn't really matter to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, then once we identify those values, then that really in some ways sort of becomes the guiding light for our work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not necessarily in every session, but certainly along the way I'm asking, you know, is that decision in alignment with your values? For example, I might have an athlete that gets invited to a competition and they're unsure of whether or not they want to go. And we use their value system as a way to help them answer to the decision of whether or Mm -hmm. not it's a good thing for them to go to that competition. You know, Mm -hmm. would going to this competition put you in alignment with commitment? Would going to this competition put you in alignment with, you know, whatever other value system they have? Mm-hmm. And if the if the answers are primarily yes, then we've got our choice. If the answers are primarily no, then why are we doing this? Right. You know, right. Um, so that's I mean, we really sort of use it as a structured, concrete way mm-hmm. to help them make choices and to help them evaluate some of the decisions that they are making. I love that. So it's mm-hmm. like this process of you know, I think so many of us, and and for me, I'm guilty of this as well. And it became very clear to me recently how much, but I, um, we make decisions so many times based on what we think we should do or what we think yeah. others expect of us instead of what is really our truth. And first it starts with understanding who we are, you know, why we're doing that. the things we're doing and then what those values are. And then when you have those and you can go back to them to, to use them to guide your decision-making, um, then you just feel like you're living, really living your best life or really living in integrity with who you are. I yeah, like absolutely. And it's, I mean, I think the thing that I hear 
the most from, from not just athletes. I mean, this is the thing, like I do this with all my clients, Mm -hmm. you know, because regardless of whether or not they're an athlete or they're a lawyer or, Mm -hmm. you know, they're sitting at the trading desk or they're just an entrepreneur that's trying to start up their own business, or Mm -hmm. they're a stay-at-home mom that's figuring out, you know, are they really happy as a stay-at-home mom? I mean, this exercise really like sort of helps shape just the work that we do in so many ways. But I think it's just so important because as you identified, like we can really lose ourselves in what other people might, in how we think other people are seeing us and how we want to, you know, outward facing, show the world who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can really help people make clear and not always comfortable, but mm-hmm. important decisions about how to really move forward in their life. Absolutely. And even if they're uncomfortable in the moment, most often they're going to be, they're going to make you feel better long-term because yes. you're, you're not wasting energy trying to be this person that you're really not, um, or trying no. to keep this, this, um, sort of external appearance. That's not really consistent with who you are. Right. I mean, being out of integrity with your values is tremendously energy depleting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, when we're trying to show up as somebody that you're really not, or you're even working with a company whose value system is like inherently misaligned with yours, mm-hmm. it's going to drain you. It is going to be mentally exhausting and mm-hmm. emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. And when you step more in alignment, you rid yourself of those things. I mean, I often tell people the greater the distance between your values and your behavior, the greater the dis-ease. Yes. And in this big gap, we find anxiety and we find depression and we find alcoholism and we find affairs yes. and we find addiction. So if we can close the gap, right, then we are much more likely to find integrity and to show up truly in the way that we want to. That is so it. I love that explanation. And uh, because sometimes it's, we, we're not even aware of it. You know, we're, right. we're not even aware that we're living out of integrity from our values because we haven't really taken the time to, to get to know them um, or do that work that you're, that you're talking about. And then it shows up in all these other ways, like you said. Right. Right. Um, and it's stunning when I like, when I give the list of values to people, <laughs> One of the first things I always hear is, oh my gosh, there's so many. (laughs) I'm like, yes, there's so many. Um, And that's why we really have to also narrow it down. Like you can't be in alignment with 20 values. Like that's not going to work. So you have to narrow it down and then really understand what matters. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, not something just for for a person sitting in your office, but this is something everyone can benefit from. And Mm -hmm. I like how, you know, you, I've heard you talk about how, um, you know, that these are things that all human, there's like this spectrum of, you know, mental health diagnoses and then things that all humans experience and can cause, you know, natural reactions or natural emotions. Um, but that, you know, we all, we all can benefit from building this mental resilience. Yeah. Well, and as you identified, as you said earlier, like it starts with Mm self-awareness, you know, I mean, if we're not, if we're not looking inward and asking ourselves, important questions that might be painful, might be difficult, might be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, we're not growing, you know? And so it really, in so many ways, like starts from within. I love that. Yeah. So then 
you know, with someone who's really clearly identified their values, what are some of the other tools that, um, that people can use to help build mental resilience or make sure that they continue to live in alignment with those values? Yeah. So I'm really big on let's cultivate your strengths and acknowledge and observe your weaknesses, but not necessarily work so much to change those in the sense that like, There is research that shows that actually the return on investment we get from cultivating and growing our strengths versus trying to dial in focuses on our weakness and make those strengths like Mm -hmm. isn't quite as grand. And so, you know, and I think this shows up all the time in the corporate setting and in the business world in the sense that like, you know, you're always asked in your performance reviews, like, well, what do you think? I think the term now, like the the latest, most acceptable term is growth edge. What is Mm -hmm. a growth edge for you? You know, what's something you want to work on? And, you know, we're often, I think, encouraged to identify something we're not really good at. But the truth is, that we get better return on investment when we when we work really hard on the things that we are really good at mm-hmm. and we continue to refine and, and provide those, you know, move those into a level of expertise. So one of the things that I like to do with clients is begin to really identify those strengths. You know, what are the strengths that you have that we can continue to build on and then you can declare as a strength? I mean, I talked about competition earlier. Competition, I think, for many people is a tremendous strength. I mean, being able to say, I want to win, I want to go out there and I want to crush it. Um, When I see that person in front of me, all I want to do is chase them down. When I see that person do X amount of reps, I just want to do one more. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, how do you get in there and cultivate that? Right. Mm -hmm. And we have to be real. I have to be really careful, for example, of, you know, conflating competition with comparing, mm-hmm. um, you know, comparing your own performance to somebody else's versus wanting to elevate your performance above theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's definitely one of the things that I often do with my clients is really try and cultivate the things that they're good at um, and work on those and work to, for that person to be able to declare that. Mm -hmm. And say, you know, I'm really good at X. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I do that is by asking my clients every day when they wake up to identify what's something that they're going to do really well today. Um, Just so that they can, because so many times, I mean, goodness gracious, how many times do we hear people say like, well, I was told to wake up and think about what's one thing I want to work on today. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. Yeah, that's great. I'm all about working on something, but what's one thing you're going to crush You know, like what's one thing that you're just going to wake up and you are going to kill it. And that could be anything. I mean, that could be the presentation that you have. That could be making breakfast for your kids. Mm -hmm. That could be your workout. It could be that uncomfortable conversation that you have to have with one of your coworkers. Like it could be anything, but I think really focusing and dialing in on the things that we do well. um, I think sometimes we conflate that with being conceited or having an ego or being a narcissist. And it's just not, I mean, that's just not what it is. It's about building confidence. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely one thing that I like to do with my clients. I love that. I also love the the term growth edge. I had not heard that before. We had um, in med school, we called them taffies, targeted areas for improvement. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yes, I think growth edge is the latest one. That I like heard. it. It's very trendy. Mm. <laughs> um, but, and I totally agree. I think, you know, it's a different, um, it's a different way to think about things because when I think about, you know, our CrossFit framework, we are really chasing fitness, like overall Mm. fitness. And so we always talk about the best way to improve your overall fitness is by working on your weaknesses. And if you have, Mm. you know, holes when you are in a CrossFit competition, if you have a a real weakness, that's going to pull you down in one event, 
you're going to better boost your overall performance by working on that weakness than your strengths. Although I think your, your point could be argued too, is that if you continue to work on your strengths and you can win a certain number of events that you're really strong at versus getting like fifth or sixth place. And then, you know, I'm sure it's, <laughs> we can do the math on all of that, but it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And one that I think I've um, come around to more lately is realizing we all have really unique gifts, you know, and being yes. proud of those gifts and leaning into them and like really letting your light shine in a way that, um, is not, like you said, not narcissistic or not conceited, but is just that you're proud to be who you are and share your gifts with the world. Um, I, I love that. I love that idea of, of just sort of leaning into those, because I think there are certain things that, you know, for whatever reason, genetically, we're just not, they don't come naturally to us. We're not necessarily right. great at them and we can bang our heads against the wall trying to get, you know, 2% better, 3% exactly. better over a lifetime. Um, and, and maybe that doesn't make us feel great about ourselves either and might not have as allow us to have as big of an impact on the world. So, yeah, no, um, absolutely. I love, I love that. I think that that's key. Um, and I loved your, uh, your question in the morning too. I recently have really refined my morning routine practice. And one thing I've been doing for the last few months is starting with three things I'm grateful for, three things I love about myself. And mm -hmm. then I do write down like my top three for the day, but I try to be, um, I try to infuse a lot of like little celebrations. Um, so something I recently interviewed BJ Fogg, who does a lot of, uh, behavior change research. And mm -hmm. he talks about how it isn't really the repetition that creates a behavior. It's the emotion associated. Mm -hmm. So if you brush yep. your teeth and you're like, great job, Julie, you just brush your teeth. Like then you get all of those positive, um, neurotransmitters and, and hormones going that, um, that reinforces the behavior. So I think that's something that, it also makes a big difference if we can sort of celebrate the things we're going to crush today, the things we're going to do great at, that creates a lot of sort of, you know, positive impact on our physiology as well. Yeah. 100%. I'm not sure who said it, but I, de so I definitely don't want to claim this as my own, but I once heard someone say emotion mainlines meaning. Oh, I love um, that. And I think that is a, like, when I heard that, I was like mind blown because I think so often we do, we think of it sometimes the other way around. And I mean, there's so much going on from an emotion system standpoint in us all the time um, mm -hmm. that I think it's, it's so important for us to recognize the power of feeling good, the, mm -hmm. you know, and also the power of not feeling good, you know, and, and what that creates for us. So I think that that's essential. Absolutely. You talked a minute ago about awareness. Um, how I know, obviously, you know, mindfulness is a technique that's commonly used, but how do you help your clients develop that relationship with their inner coach or their observer to be able to be more aware of their thoughts or the stories that they might be telling themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing actually that I encourage clients to do is get rid of the word why. Because oftentimes when we think about self-awareness, we're ask our, we're encouraged to ask ourselves, like, why am I thinking this? Mm -hmm. Or why am I feeling this way? And the truth is, you know, for better or for worse, when we're little kids, we associate the word why with something wrong. Why did you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I did something wrong. Why did you put, it. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Why did you put the cookies in the freezer? You know, oh, I did something wrong. <laughs> so we associate the word why with something that we have to defend, you know, um, whereby indicating that it was something that was wrong. And so 
I am a huge believer in us getting rid of the word why and substituting it with something else like what? So for example, what's going on right now that's making me feel this way mm. instead of why do I feel this way, mm-hmm. right? And so just to even in a sense, what that does, first of all, is it makes us pause because it's a little bit more of a complex question. I love that, yeah. Um, and when we pause, we're better able to access parts of our brain that sort of provide us with more information rather than that first official defensive position, like, why do I feel this way? Because Johnny's an a-hole, you know, or whatever it is. It's like, well, what happened that's making me feel this way? Well, Johnny made a critical comment about my work in the board meeting, and that was really upsetting to me. Like, it's just, it, you know, it feels, it's a little bit more complex and allows us to go a little bit deeper. So that's, I mean, that to me is like such an essential step for individuals who are looking to build self-awareness. Um, and also, by the way, any parents that are listening, like a really important thing to try and do with your kids, you know, when they, when they're sad not, why are you sad? What's making you feel sad? Mm-hmm. Or by the way, with your partner, if you're in a romantic relationship, so tips everywhere. In terms <laughs> I love of that. Music. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I often encourage clients to really think about, um, like four primary things, like what are the thoughts that I'm having, mm-hmm. right? What are the feelings that I'm having? Um, what are the types of, re- what, what are the types of ways of relating that I engage in? Like how I, how am I engaging in a relationship with X people and how am mm-hmm. I showing up in the world? So it's thoughts, feelings, relationships, and behaviors. Um, and it, I think, you know, for most of my clients, I mean, for sure, there can be a structured practice like you have, for example, of getting up in the morning and just pausing and taking, you know, five to 10 minutes with yourself to ask yourself some questions. The other thing, though, that I encourage clients to do is like take micro pauses during the day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're feeling yourself getting physiologically elevated about something, right, you're at a workout and your coach feel, is you know, feels really frustrating to you, or you're frustrated with, with, with yourself because you're not, you know, engaging in the way that you want to win the workout, like take a pause, go to the restroom and splash the water on your face and ask yourself some of those questions. Um, but I, I think that those pauses are pretty essential. And then I, sh- I think the shift in language of how we ask ourselves questions absolutely needs to change because you don't want to put yourself up, up you don't want to put yourself on the stand. Mm-hmm. Like you're not in a courtroom here. You don't have to defend yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, we're more on an ex. Like I'd like to think about it as an expedition. Like we're here and we're exploring what's going on with us. We're not defending. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. That's something I've been working through personally too, is just how realizing how much I how judgmental I am of myself, of my thoughts, of my emotions, and and really kind of breaking that down. So I love that shift into just asking what instead of asking why. Yeah, absolutely. I want to circle back to this concept of discomfort. Um, and you said how, you know, we're, I think we can all agree we're living in a, in a world that prioritizes comfort and things that are convenient and easy, often over courage and challenges. And I know you talk about how it's important to you to challenge your clients. You don't want them to just come in your office and have a great time and and feel great (laughs) every time they leave, which I'm sure would be more fun for them in the moment. But um, it it requires, and I think this is another great parallel between the physical and mental is that we don't get fitter by, you know, being comfortable in our workouts. We usually need to push ourselves and get outside our comfort zone in order to improve physically. And the same thing goes mentally and emotionally. So 
why, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that, why it's important to you and what are some of the ways that you do that um, to help your clients, obviously in a way that it's also, you know, nurturing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for me, and it is funny because like the few times that I have two kids. And so obviously I went on maternity leave when I had my children. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I came back and like picked back up with my clients, the thing that I heard the most is like, well, such and such was great, but they were like too nice. <laughs> um, and that's so, great. you know, and I love that. Like to me, honestly, sometimes that's the best feedback I can get. Yeah. You know, whenever I start off with a new client, I'm really, um, I usually have like an intro session where we can, you know, just explore whether or not we're a good fit. And usually in that intro session, one of the things that I say to my clients is that, um, Honesty is a huge element of this work with me. And I don't even mean you, client, being honest with me. Yes, that's important because, of course, in order for me to help you, it's important for me to know what's really going on and there be there and have transparency there. But I actually mean me being honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because in order for this to work, I have I am going to say things to you that are going to be uncomfortable, that are sometimes going to be painful. And guess what? That are also sometimes going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the beginning, I really sort of set the stage of that. And I think, I think, listen, I'm a very active therapist. I mean, that probably doesn't come as a surprise to you because you've kind of <laughs> seen me in action a little bit, but um, I'm definitely not like your sit back. Oh, just tell me how that makes you feel kind of person, mm-hmm. which is probably why clients like, don't think lay I'm down nice on the couch. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think to me, you know, I, I like to really get in there. I mean, I really like to do the work and collaborate and get curious. Um, and so some of the ways that that plays out is, you know, if I think something is going on with a client and we're not, we're kind of like tiptoeing around it, or they're sort of tiptoeing around it. I mean, I have to take the risk in being able to say, Hey, listen, I think this is part of the issue. Mm -hmm. And Sure. There might be times where I might be putting myself at risk for getting fired. You Mm -hmm. know, they may not want to hear that. Mm -hmm. Um, But gosh, 99.9% of the time, it's beneficial to the work Um, that, you know, first and foremost, I create a safety there with all the clients that I have in the sense that like, you know, nothing that ever comes out of my mouth will come out of my mouth from a judgmental point of view. Um, but it also won't come out of my mouth from a power differential point of view. Mm-hmm. You and I as client and me as mm-hmm. your psychologist or as your performance coach, we're in a relationship together, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we are both figuring this out at the same time. I am not an expert on you. Mm-hmm. You are the expert on you. And you're going to teach me more about you than I'm going to teach you about you. Yeah. Um, so I think from that point standpoint, like, I really like to engage with my clients in a way that's collaborative, but I also am very aware that, or, and I'm also very aware that in order for us to really change and do the work, we have to push ourselves in a place that gets uncomfortable. I mean, I love using humor. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to laugh with my clients. I'm quite sarcastic, Um, (laughs) but I do think that it's, it's pretty essential. And the other part of this, Julie, is I don't believe that people should necessarily be in therapy forever or be working with a performance coach forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And in so many ways, like it's my goal to graduate you out of this, Yeah, you know, give you the tools. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's get the work done. Let's figure this out and then let's get you on your way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, in so many ways, like part of the initial goal of, I think any therapeutic alliance with a client and, you know, a psychologist is that, 
the, the client internalizes my voice in some ways, you know, so they go home and they think to themselves, well, what would Dr. L say about this? You know, or what would Dr. Penn say about this? Mm-hmm. But then it, they make it their own and it becomes their own. And that's eventually why they can fly the coop, yeah. you know, and they can get out of here because then it's, it's all theirs and it's all there in their head and they know it anyway. And who cares if they have to come back in a year? So what they come back in a year and they figure it out again, you know, because guess what? In life, we go through transitions and we go through obstacles all the time that Absolutely. put us in a different position. But I think that for me is really, really important is being able to challenge, being able to push. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you asked any of my clients, you know, maybe like, how is she able to do that though? They would say like, well, she's doing it because she wants to help. Like it exactly. all just comes from yeah. that place of wanting to contribute in yeah. that way. And sometimes I think that's a hard concept for, for people, but sometimes really caring about someone and doing what's best for them is speaking truth to them, which is sometimes hard for them to hear. And I think often we shy away from that, even in our closest relationships, our family and friends, because we don't want to make people uncomfortable because it makes us uncomfortable. And, um, but, but I know I've been grateful for that in my own life, the people who are really willing to be honest with me and tell me the things that I don't want to hear. I thank them in the long run, even if it's uncomfortable in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing that I am well aware of is that, you know, my relationship with any client is like a microcosm of their relationship with anybody else. And so in so many ways, if we can have an honest relationship where we dialogue authentically, where we challenge each other, I'm challenged by my clients all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and where we explore difficult things, they're going to take that experience into the outside world and Mm -hmm. do it with other people, either being on the receiving end or being on the helping end, you know? And so I think that's the other really important piece is that, you know, any work that I do with a client, I know does not stay and remain in the Petri dish of the therapeutic alliance. It gets spread outside of that out into the world. And I want them to have a template for what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who cares about you, wants the best for you, but is not afraid to say mm-hmm. what's the truth and what's honest and also be wrong. Mm-hmm. I am absolutely wrong a lot of the time and I don't mind being so, mm-hmm. you know, at least I'm taking a risk. Right. I love that. And when you have enough trust in that relationship, you know, you can talk about those things and That's right. it's okay if you're wrong. Cause you, you know, you know, you're coming from a good place. Totally. Right. Um, One topic I would love to touch on is just the difference between what people maybe think of as mental toughness or mental resilience and just plain numbing. Like, I think that there's a a way that we can just sort of numb our emotions to be able to like push through hard situations, um, which, you know, I'm sure in certain situations is important, but then that can have negative implications in the long term. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I love that you raised this issue. So, I mean, listen, mental resilience and mental toughness, like actually doesn't include any numbing. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) from my perspective, Mm -hmm. it includes almost the complete opposite, Mm -hmm. which is like being aware of that, which you are feeling under understanding as best as you can. Sometimes we don't always know, but understanding as best as you can what you are feeling and what led those emotions to pop up in the first place. Um, And then being able to tolerate them or being able to work through them or being able to sort of actively and purposely shift to something different. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not even close to being about numbing Mm -hmm. Um, and numbing gets you in trouble. I mean, it just, as you, as you said, I mean, we are, 
we are complex and complicated human beings. And when, first of all, when we numb the bad, we numb the good. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do not have an emotional, you know, an, an emotional colander that can weed out everything that's icky and keep everything that's Wouldn't fantastic. that be great? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, mental toughness and mental resilience. I mean, it is about understanding the pain and the difficulty and the hardship and the grief and the loss and the depression and the anxiety and being able to figure out how to rise from that and move mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's been a big um, personal journey for me. I think I was very much numbing for a long time and have sort of reawakened a lot of emotions and I can completely agree with you. It's been all the positives and all of the hard ones, but it's all really beautiful because that's like, it's the human experience. And those difficult emotions are, if you pay attention to them, they're there to tell you something. Um, And so there's a lot that we can learn from them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that this is what I actually talk about another thread that I often see between athletes, obviously it's like performance anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And all I will often have athletes say to me, like, I don't understand this. This is like my seventh time running this competition or doing this. Why am I so anxious? You Mm -hmm. know? And of course I'm like, well, let's not say why, you know, what led me to be so anxious. Um, but what if the answer is as simple as because it matters to you? Mm-hmm. Like, what if that's, what if it's as simple as that? Yeah. What if this is, what if you're nervous about this because you've been training for six months mm-hmm. and you've been putting hours of work into this and you really want to crush it and kill it and get first. And that's why you're nervous. Yeah. Like, could it just be that thing. simple? Right. You know, or how different people might define it as excitement or yes. anxiety, but the same sort of bodily feelings. Response. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Depending on how we define it. Beautiful. Well, I know we're about out of time, but I wanted to close with three questions that I ask everybody on the podcast. Ooh. So the first one is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Ugh. This would be overall health, mental, physical, emotional, all of the things. Um, the number one thing is I, every morning, except for on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so that would be five mornings. I have like my own me time self-care routine. Mm -hmm. Um, I get up before the rest of my family gets up. I come downstairs, I make my breakfast and yes, my coffee. Mm -hmm. And I read for 30 minutes and I write for 30 minutes. And if anybody comes down during that time, they do not talk to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You set some boundaries. boundaries. (laughs) Um, They can get a blanket. And they can sit quietly on the couch. It's, mm-hmm. it's usually 4 a.m. So it's work out. Um, but nobody can ask anything of me. They can't communicate with me. Like it is my, and that for me sets off the tone of the day yes. for, you know, for myself. Like yes. I'm going to make myself a priority. So that's number one. Number two is absolutely moving my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a runner. And so oftentimes I'm training, but during the day between sessions, I'll get up and walk around the block or just to the pond across my street. Um, getting up and moving my body is just so essential. Mm-hmm. I definitely have a lot of energy and if it gets stored up and mm-hmm. I don't have an outlet for it, it comes out in probably not so great ways. Um, IE not being very nice to the kids or whatever sure. it is, you know, <laughs> I think we've um, all experienced that ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And then the third I would say is laughing. Mm-hmm. I have like the closest people to me in my life. 
I mean, just two of my best friends that I can think of right now, whenever I talk to them or text with them, we're laughing. Yeah. So to me, and even like who I follow on Instagram, I mean, other than maybe like a few people that always make those yummy microwave oat things. Um, <laughs> they're all, they're comedians. Yeah. Um, and so that to me, like laughing is really important. So those three things. I love it. I love it. What is one thing that you think might have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm pretty good about drinking water. I probably could maybe not drink as much coffee in the morning as I do, um, which is so funny that I'm having this conversation with you now because in two hours I have an appointment with a doctor at Wild Health. <laughs> well, you'll have to look at your caffeine genetics and how you exactly, metabolize it. And exactly, then, I'm like then crossing see. my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, no, I think sometimes actually for me, it's it's getting enough nutrition in. Um, I'm a little bit of like a bird when it comes to sometimes just what I put in my mouth. Mm -hmm. And so, especially when I'm doing higher volume training, I have Mm -hmm. to consciously make sure that I am getting enough nutrients in my body. And so I would definitely say that probably. That's great. That's great. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? Uh, one that includes laughter and adventure. I love I mean, it. Right on your tombstone. It's going to be Yeah, beautiful. it's 100%. <laughs> I mean, whatever that means. I mean, you know, I can crack up with my kids at the kitchen table over something funny they're saying, or, you know, I mean, we can go on big adventures across seas or little adventures across to the pond. But mm-hmm. those two things I think are, they're just so essential to me. They're such a value system for me. I love it. That's beautiful. Well, this has been wonderful. I have so enjoyed our conversation and, you know, so much more I would love to talk about. Maybe we'll do a follow-up sometime, but, um, where can people learn more about you? Where can they find you? Well, I'm on Instagram, but I'll be honest. It's not my number one priority. Okay. Usually not. She's using the value system and it doesn't really fall (laughs) exactly high on the list. Um, And I would say that, you know, it, my posts are quite verbose. I mean, there, this is someone once said to me, like, I can't believe you make people read all of this stuff. (laughs) They don't have to read it. They they can scroll right through it. Um, but you can find me on Instagram, but also, I mean, listen, I'm a human being and most of my work, like I said, is my private practice. So, you know, my website, drlarapence.com. You can email me, Lara at drlarapence.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a human being that's out in the world doing the work. So, you know, if you're, if you want to access me, send me an email. Wonderful. Out in the world, doing great work and sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Julie. Such a delight. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.